3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders, past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning. Good morning, everyone. How are we all doing today? Our listeners uh, have been very receptive and we've received many donations. So we thank you sincerely for supporting 3CR and particularly 3CR Breakfast during our Radiothon month. There is still two days to go before the end of financial year and that's an opportunity to give and receive a tax deductible for your donation. So stationwide, we've raised $190,000. We do have a total of $275,000, so a little way to go. But the Breakfast Show is doing really well. We're almost at our target. So please, if you haven't um, already done so and you are in a position to share a little to help us stay on the air, call 94198377. You can text us with a message and a pledge at 0488 809855 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or head to the breakfast shows give now page yeah so um thanks again to our listeners mm-hmm. Grace, yes you're going to tell us what we've got on for the show today yeah, so we've got a lot coming up today as usual, the same thing, same as usual, uh, but interesting stuff coming along differently every week. So first up, we're going to be listening to a chat with Bill Pill, and uh, the author for his new book, Tonight It's a World We Bury, Black Metal, Rit Politics. What? And so this is basically a chat with Andy Fleming and Cam Smith from Yena Pasran. So it's, it's going to be looking into the, the musical genre of black metal and how this notoriety connects with its fastest politics. And then we're going to be moving on into a chat with Stephanie Fornazer, a psychologist, mother and producer of Psychocinematic Podcasts. And basically they'll be talking to Flick Manning, the host of 3CR Brainwaves. The podcast, it was born out of her love for film and passion for breaking down stigma surrounding mental illness and disability. And yeah, she'll basically be talking about her mental health journey in there. And then next up, we'll I'll be speaking to Prof Ricky on Baby Talks. Basically, they, there was a research study using the Walpuri language, which helps the little kids to learn how to speak. So interesting stuff there. And then finally, we'll be Claudia will be talking to Yasmin Smith about the QUP First Nations Classics series. Yasmin is an editor, writer, and poet of South Sea Islander, Kabi Kabi. 
and English Heritage. Well, that's another busy show. Mm-hmm. Miss a week, but nothing yep. skips a beat here. We're mm-hmm. going to go to a couple of announcements and then we'll come back uh, and we'll have news headlines. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Items you put into plastic bags can't be recycled. Try using a tub or container to collect your recycling to avoid plastic bags. When you correctly sort your recycling into your bin loose and not in a bag, it can be turned into things like planter boxes, park benches and tables. They might seem small, but your actions make a big impact. Find out more at sustainability.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Going to go into our headlines for this morning. So, all the way uh, here based in Victoria, uh, WorkSafe has fined a Victorian diving company $730,000 for putting workers at risk of drowning. The company, called Underwater Inspection Services, uh, conduct, conducts water tank and irrigation inspections and repairs have been pleaded guilty to seven charges to five incidents since 2018. One case actually includes a female diver who called into a narrow 3.5 meter long irrigation culvert at Kerang in northwest Victoria in Ju- July 2018. The umbilical cord attached to her diving gear became stuck on the outside of culvert and hence what she could not move. The court was also told that apparent that rats were swimming around her as she lay in murky water. And she started to panic from there and called for help by activating a communication system, but no one responded. And then only after 15 minutes, she had to shimmy backwards to escape on her own. WorkSafe in- Investigations found a backup diver on the same job was not adequately trained to rescue and was unfamiliar with their ill-fitting dry suit, mask-breeding apparatus. And The Guardian reports that the Earth has lost an area the size of Switzerland of primary forest as a result of human destruction in 2022 alone. The forests were among the most carbon-dense and biodiverse ecosystems in the world and thus were effective tools for mitigating the effects of climate change and biodiversity loss. In some areas, Indigenous communities were forced from their land as a result of the clearing activities for mining, cattle ranching and agriculture. The figures show a failure by countries who signed the COP26 commitment to reverse rainforest deforestation by 2030. The United Nations Environment Chief has called for a higher price for forest carbon to reduce rainforest clearing. The world has lost more than 72 million hectares of primary forest in the past 21 years. Brazil, followed by Indonesia, have recorded the highest losses. And back on Australian soil, the Wani people of Queensland have become the first Aboriginal landowners of a Queensland property after more than 79,000 hectares of state-held land in the Bujamula National Park was returned to the community last week. The chairman of the Wanyi prescribed body corporate, Alec Dumadai, said the area was integral to culture and country. We stand on the shoulders of great Wanyi warrior men and women that have gone before us who have led our struggle to take back our land, Bunjamula, he said. 
Wani people together can benefit from our land in a positive way. The community wishes to work respectively and cooperatively with the Queensland Government and will lease back the lands to the Government under an agreement reached between the parties. And that's all for headlines this morning. And we're going to jump straight into our first segment. Yep. So just to give a bit more roundup again. So this. So we're going to be looking at a chat with Bill Pill about his new book, Tonight It's a World We Bury, Black Metal Red politics uh this is a chat by interviewed by andy fleming and cam smith from yana pasran basically the, the book talks about what are the possibilities in a musical genre where notarity connects it with fascist politics really interesting stuff uh just to bear in mind this segment it only covers a part of the entire conversation so if you would like to listen to the entire chat about the whole book can head to tricia.org.au here in our past run but yeah we'll let's take a listen to the part of it i guess just to begin with you've written this book tonight it's a world we bury subtitle black metal red politics could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this basically it was a way of like of kind of smashing my two biggest interests together to see what came out i suppose so the book isn't specifically about fascism in black metal so much it's more about finding like a potential left-wing politics in black metal not even like left-wing bands necessarily even though those do exist it's more about finding like how do i put it finding resonances let's say between certain ideas that black metal has and and certain ideas that are common among left-wing thought let's say so bill for listeners who maybe unfamiliar with the genre can you briefly explain what black metal is and uh, you know where they where it might have been heard before sure so black metal started in the late 80s early 90s let's say and it kind of came out of the more extreme sides of thrash metal so people have probably people might not have heard the term thrash metal but you know bands like metallica slayer Megadeth, Anthrax, those are usually considered like the big four of thrash metal. And black metal is more or less what started as more or less just an extreme version of that. So whereas death metal also came out of thrash metal, death metal is very low pitched, very technical, the famous like cannibal corpse, like really low growling sort of thing. Black metal is the opposite of that. So the guitars tend to be high pitched, super fast, very amateurish in terms of like actual actually playing the music and the screaming in black metal tends to be high pitched rather than low pitched so it's difficult to explain black metal in terms of itself but i always like to make that comparison because black metal and death metal get confused quite a bit to those who aren't that aware of them i guess in thinking about the relationship between music in this case black metal and politics when i or i guess insofar as Black metal has some kind of political status. It's normally understood to be either nihilistic and apolitical or right-wing, and hence we've witnessed the development of something called National Socialist Black Metal. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Black Metal and NSBM or National Socialism? Sure. So basically since since the genre started, it's had it's been associated with right-wing musicians 
So earlier I, I, I referenced Burzum, the very famous band, and the one man behind Burzum is called Varg Vikernes, who is probably one of the more famous black metal musicians, partly famous because his politics are so right-wing. So he, how do I put it? Yeah, besides like murdering the band members and stuff, <laughs> which which he did back in the nineties, he got really into you know, what he called heathen nationalism, which is more or less like a kind of pagan nationalism, kind of harkening back to the days of pre-Christian Scandinavia. Right, he's really obsessed with like Viking mythology and casting himself as a as a figure of like Norse legend. That was a big thing that. He, that, that's a big thing that he was influenced by back in the 90s. But it wasn't just Varg, of course. There's also quotes in that Lords of Chaos book I mentioned. There are quotes from Hellhammer, who was the drummer for the band Burzum. And he said pretty emphatically, like, black metal is for white people. And as far as we're aware, like, that was a, that was a sentiment that was pretty widely shared among the scene. It's like I said, though, it's come a long way. Like nowadays, there are there are some other more famous musicians. Like there is Mika Asper, who's quite well known from mostly from the band Deathspell Omega, but he also runs. I, I believe he's involved in running a label called Northern Heritage, which is you know its name kind of gives the game away in terms of its you know racial and like kind of Western civilization in quotes like interests. And another sort of famous figure is called Alexei Levkin, of a band whose name that I cannot pronounce. It's, a, it's in Russian, if I remember correctly. And he's recently kind of been more been more well-known for being in the Azov Battalion. He was, he was always very in- interested in that, like, Ukrainian nationalism and stuff like that. But it does go broader than those three figures. Like, particularly NSBM seems to be most common in states or in countries that you could broadly call post-Soviet. So Russia, Ukraine, and Poland, they have always had this reputation in black metal for harboring a very right-wing atmosphere. Obviously, you know, there are NSBM bands from America. There are many from Australia as well, which we can get into. There's even some from like South America and Asia. It goes all over the place, but primarily Russia, Ukraine, and Poland seem to be the kind of hubs for this like NSBM atmosphere, even like since the nineties and to today. It's a continuing trend. In some countries in Europe, Ukraine, for example, you have a situation where like an NSBM festival like Asgard's Ray can sort of operate out in the open. That's not so much the case here in Australia where people have to be a little bit more sneaky, but also have to rely on the concept of, you know, apoliticism. Could you speak a little bit about these bands that are, and their apoliticalness? Oh, I'm blanking on the names now, unfortunately. Hang on, yeah, there some Australian bands like Drowning the Light, uh, what's another one, Spear of Longinus, who are kind of the subject of a very good academic article by Ben Hillier, who's like, a, I believe he's a musicologist in Australia who covers metal. But basically these bands, their politics fly under the radar because, frankly, like being a Nazi isn't exactly you know economically viable in a mainstream sense, which I suppose is a good thing. But a lot of these bands, they will kind of use black metal's history 
of being extreme and being transgressive and being kind of quote unquote radical as a way of saying that oh the Nazi things we say we don't actually believe them we're just being transgressive right and the thing that Ben Hillier writes comes from Keith Kahn Harris who's like another metal covering academic he calls it non-reflexive reflexivity which is basically a more complicated way of saying like everyone kind of knows these bands politics but we have to pretend that we don't know or they have to pretend that they don't know for the sake of getting by and for the sake of becoming popular so that spear of longinus band like if you look them up in something like metal archives right every single one of their demos eps albums whatever is either names its name is something national socialist or nazi related and its artwork is usually nazi related as well often it's the more esoteric stuff you know referring to like julius evola or the order of nine angles or something like that but this presence is always there but in their public facing messages like on facebook and stuff they will often say you know oh we have the band is not political the band has no political ideology right which is absurd on its face because you look at all of their publications and it's like you're referring to these kind of fascist icons but like i said before basically uh, the bands use these things to one kind of sidle in and kind of get around the nazi accusations but also to kind of subtly spread those nazi ideology to people who might genuinely be like unsuspecting black metal listeners as a teenager when i was first getting into black metal like i didn't know that a lot of the bands i was listening to had these associations so there's the band drudka from ukraine who are like very famous and i like i adored them when i was you know 16 17 that kind of area and i had no idea that they had this side project called hate forest which was much more like overtly nsbn adjacent and their second album blood in our wells is dedicated to stepan bandera i think that's how you pronounce that the kind of ukrainian nationalist figure a nazi collaborator or alleged nazi collaborator there is also the band pest noir who are also very famous and quite well known they were another band who as a teenager you know i just listened to them cuz black metal's lyrics are incomprehensible right you can't understand them unless you make an effort to read them and pest noir's lyrics are often you know french nationalists and you kind of it, it cloaks itself in like french revolutionary aesthetics but more recently pesnoir and famine its central musician who've become much more overtly nsbm related and they've you know they've played asgard's ray and these kind of nazi festivals and they've been much more uh, outspoken about that bill many of the bands you've identified have some unsavory politics and yet the book as a whole seems to argue in favor of if not rehabilitating black metal at least examining it closely for grounds upon which it might become a more subversive force and fulfill its promise and you describe the genre through various you know musical and other devices like distortion and so on can you briefly outline the approach you took to i guess writing about black metal and its interpretation and what it provides for or allows for in terms of more progressive or socialist expression sure basically i i i set out writing the book knowing what i didn't want to write first 
So, you know, like a lot of black metal people have read books like Lords of Chaos and have seen, okay, like I don't want, like, and my, my understanding of that was I didn't just want to write a left-wing history of black metal music, not only because there's not honestly a lot there, but it's not the kind of book that I would like absolutely love to read in the same way that I'd love to read, you know, a book like Black Metal Rainbows, which is another book that we can talk about later, maybe. So I set out knowing that, yeah, I didn't want to just write like a kind of biography of like left-wing black metal bands. I didn't really want to write like a left-wing history of black metal. I, I set out those chapters the way that I did because I wanted to start with what distinguishes black metal from other genres of music and other genres of metal, right? Because I knew from the start, like the book was going to be about black metal just because... I don't really have that much familiarity with other metal genres. <laughs> like it's this, it's this interesting thing where like a lot of black metal fans who I've talked to have said, and I agree with this as well. This is tr true of me that, you know, oh, the only real metal genre I listen to is black metal and like everything else, you know, I listen to like shoegaze or, you know, drone or stuff like that. So those kind of concepts, which are what distortion, decay, secrecy, coldness, and heresy. I write about those because I think that they're obviously not every black metal band adheres to all of them or adheres to any of them, but those are fairly common conventions that seem very specific to black metal in comparison to death metal or doom metal or other genres, like I said. So I would start with those concepts and kind of make connections between those concepts and like what a thinker on the left might you know might be writing like it would often have like a eureka sort of moment basically it would be like oh i could connect black metal's coldness and that kind of ongoing connection to andreas malm's new book about like not new book but andreas malm's fossil capital which is about like the development of coal during the industrial revolution and like that birth of capitalism more or less so the book uh, the book isn't really a criticism of fascist black metal or like nsbm so much as it is and like an affirmation of what can be left-wing about black metal and i don't want to say i'm putting like a definitive stamp on it either like a lot of you know nazis like black metal and there is something there is something about black metal that nazis seem specifically quite drawn to while i didn't want to obsess about that you kind of have to acknowledge that is a big part of the genre's history, in my opinion. And that was Andy Fleming and Cam Smith, TCR's presenters of Yerna Passeran, speaking to Otter Bill Pill about his new book, Tonight It's a World We Bury, Black Metal Rip Politics. And it basically uh, talks about how, this po how there's a possibility where this musical genre, black metal, uh, has a notary connection with fascist politics. If you would like to listen to the entire conversation, you can head to tricia.org.au Yena Pasaran. And you'll also catch Yena Pasaran every Thursday from 4.30 to 5pm. It's a 30-minute show and yeah, you can head there to listen to, you can head there to go listen to the live or, and if you want to listen more to the entire conversation on the book, yeah, head to our Tricia webpage. Thank you, Grace. And we're now going to head to a track. This is One True Place, Amy Saunders. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM.
and we're the breakfast team. One of these days you'll be wandering over sea and over land to a place where we can be together. And although we now have parted, I do believe. That those who truly love each other Will meet again And although your heart is heavy And your mind, it needs to rest Even though your days are real and in and coming to an end Let there be no sorrow Let there be no pain For there comes to you a promise that we'll meet again room You may think it was wrong for me to leave You all alone But some things are bigger than both of us to understand Here and now But I promise
That was Amy Saunders, One True Place. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. I'm Claudia and I've got Grace here with me in the studio. Next up, we're going to hear from a woman whose love of film and breaking down stigmas has led her to create a podcast combining both passions. Stephanie Forneser is a psychologist, mother and producer of the Psycho Cinematic podcast, a podcast which psychologically analyses depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV. Stephanie spoke to 3CR Brainways host Flick Manning about the podcast project, her own mental health journey and why people should care about ethical portrayals of mental illness and disability. And note that the conversation deals with sensitive content around mental health and disability. Some of what discussed may be distressing. If you feel this might be not the right time for you to tune into this, please take a break. This will go for about 15 minutes and then join back in afterwards. For any resources or support you may need, head to beyondblue.org or call Lifeline 1311. One four. So let's take a listen now. Steph, what can society do differently to reduce the stigma around mental health and represent the lived experiences of mental health conditions in a better and more accurate way? That's a great question. Um, I think the most important thing that needs to change is have people with lived experience in more decision-making roles in the mental health field as well as um, in the actual depictions of mental health which is gradually improving as we sort of evolve as a society, but still a long ways to go, I think. One of my future guests that I interviewed recently said, nothing about us without us in charge, which I really liked. It was a little bit of a a spin on the nothing about us without us comment, not just have consultation with someone with a disability or mental health, but also have them in an active um, leadership role because that's sometimes that's the difference in seeing it, an accurate depiction versus an inaccurate depiction. You can kind of really tell when a representation has been created with people with mental health issues in, in the sort of forefront. I also think we're becoming a bit more discerning as a community um, now that mental health is becoming a lot less taboo to talk about thanks to social media. So the conversation's continuing and it's growing. So I think... Um, and just needs to continue to grow so that there are more opportunities for people with mental illness to be involved in um, representation and be supported to do so as well. So making sure that film sets, the film industry, and and just generally um, media are inclusive so that people's access to needs are being taken into account and they're actually leading what those are. And it's I think it, another point as well is that the, some of the stigma actually comes from the mental illness sector itself as well. For example, the DSM is widely known that it's a very flawed diagnostic tool. And when it was sort of created, it was really only based on the male population, the straight cis population. So we're starting to shift away from just using that research-based um, modalities such as things like the DSM 
and incorporating more lived experience based modalities as well. So um, we're getting a more well-rounded understanding of mental illness and disability and also treatment. And I think that's a really exciting place to go. Also, we need to put more money into the mental health system and fund it properly and make it more accessible to gain a diagnosis and have treatment, uh, which is a huge undertaking. And I really hope that we make some movements towards that. Tick, tick, tick to everything I just said. Yeah, look, I think the lived experience angle is just so essential in, in all ways. And I actually find it extremely baffling as a person with mental illness and disability myself that these things have sort of taken so long to even be considered to be important. And as Steph, like many folks, as we went into the start of the pandemic, and I, of course, want to stress here that the pandemic is ongoing. I'm not talking about it in the past tense. And isolation became a thing for so many of us and, you know, people with disabilities are still very much in that place as well. I embarked on watching a lot of older films and TV at that time because suddenly, you know, home was the only space that I could be in. And I really wanted that nostalgia kick to feel good, have things around me that sort of made me feel warm and cuddly. So I sort of was watching all of this stuff that in my memory was really wonderful and really, you know, turning points in my life as a teenager and a child, and then was absolutely flawed on rewatching them now as an adult about just how horrid some of the themes and societal messages and how terrible the portrayal of so many different sort of scenarios actually were. When people, you know, tune into your podcast or look at your socials, are people generally surprised when they rewatch older movies and TV at what was being put in their brain, you know, in the 90s and the 80s and so on. And if so, what aspects of that are they actually most surprised by? Yes, constantly. I'm also surprised myself when I'll rewatch something that I loved when I was younger. And, and it might not necessarily be just mental illness, but just the messages of living your life or, um, you know, gender and sexuality and things like that. And yeah, sometimes that can be hard for people to, I guess I've often been accused of ruining someone's favourite film, sometimes lightheartedly, sometimes not, uh, particularly Disney. Disney is the biggest thing people get surprised by and also really upset by um, whenever I point it out, especially TikTok. And uh, particularly disabled tropes, Disney is very responsible for reinforcing a lot of um, those such as Captain Hook, The Seven Dwarves. And there's also lots of psychological themes in some of those really classic, beloved films like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. A lot of those movies, love seems to be the cure-all, whether it's mental illness, uh, disability, just life. Um, love is the answer to everything, um, which was also perpetuated in a lot of films where mental illness is um, the overarching theme. So I find it always really frustrating, but... People can get quite defensive when when you bring up some of the negative themes in those or not unhelpful themes in some of those movies because they're so beloved. And I feel bad sometimes, but it also, I think it's really important to say that I'm not trying to ruin, I'm actually not trying to ruin anything. I can't, it might inadvertently dampen some of your favorite films, but it's really important to be aware of those tropes. There's a reason why we evolve and change as a society because what maybe served us then doesn't serve us now. We know more now and we can choose to accept or reject those tropes. And I'm not trying to tell anyone to stop watching something. For example, I mentioned The Wizard of Oz before. It's still one of my favorite films and I'll still watch it. <laughs> 
even though it was awful to the the dwarfism community and perpetuated so many stereotypes. But the more that we can critique and have conversations about what we see and just watch things with a more critical lens, then we can actually pick up or reject some of the messages that it shares. And on that note about um, mental illness, particularly a lot of mental illness is shown through horror and thriller films, things like Hitchcock films, like Psycho. Um, a lot of people were surprised. Um, we talked about Psycho in just a, a sort of summary episode that the di- the mental illness that um, Norman Bates has doesn't actually exist. Like he he. Um, there isn't actually a mental illness where you take on the persona of your mother. <laughs> it's made up. And so that was surprising to some people. And I think it's, you know, can be really fun to look at the horror um, or use mental illness in some of those sort of horror lenses, but um, it is very much the product of its time sometimes and can perpetu- perpetuate very negative stereotypes. But, yeah, it's really just about looking at the context of the film what its purpose was, like often those um, older um, depictions weren't there to share about this mental illness and bring awareness for it. It was just to tell a story. So keeping that in mind, but also rejecting some of the messages that come from it. Absolutely. I think it sort of serves as, in a way, like good empathy training for society to relook at stuff. And sometimes it is very uncomfortable. You know, people have to learn to sit with discomfort um, and again, that's something that we've not been trained to do very well as a society is we're trying to True. ignore all the discomfort, run away from pain, all of those kinds of things. But growth, you know, is sort of has that precursor of discomfort to it. And I think that's a really good place for people to sit to learn how to empathize with other people because then you're going, well, it might not affect me personally at this point in my life, but what if something happens to my body and it changes and then actually I am like that person that's depicted on screen as a villain purely because I have got a facial difference or something along those lines. And of course, you're not going to want to be treated that way in actual society if something does get changed. So I think it's, you know, it's important that we sit with our discomfort. Definitely. 100%. Now, Steph, what TV shows and movies would you recommend people watch to get a, maybe a clearer idea on the lived experience of mental health or the you know actual experience of being a therapist, for example? Uh, great question. Um, there's so much out there that's not very accurate, but there's also some really beautiful um, representation that's excellent. I guess anything that has the actual community involved in the creation of it, not just consulted with, but what created or acted in it or um, had some uh, production credits and things like that. One thing we just reviewed recently was Please Like Me, which is the TV series by Josh Thomas. And it just portrays mental illness in so many different aspects. And you can really tell that it was done really carefully and with love and also not really tried not to um, perpetuate some of the common tropes um, that occur. And also showed it very, so I guess some context, um, so Josh Thomas created this show as a bit of a, a tribute to his mother's mental health journey, um, who has bipolar, um, but there's also grief in it, there's anxiety in it, there's lots of um, controversial subjects, there's abortion, and it's a really 
well fleshed out, very well um, handled depiction of of those things, as well as being in a mental mental health ward in a hospital. Um, that's something we don't see very well. Um, uh, probably the most common memory of that would be one floor over the cuckoo's nest, which is based in the sixties. And some of those things were accurate, and some of them were prob- um, a little bit embellished for the story. But it was. Please like me. I think it's just it just ticks all the boxes of a good portrayal with lived experience within it and showing realistic messages, not not necessarily positive or negative, just um, the I guess the complexity of mental illness and it how it it, it goes you know it has highs and lows and then it's not a beginning middle and end kind of story. So that TV show is amazing. And then in terms of film portrayal, um, I think the best one I've seen, it's not very popular, it uh, it wasn't a a blockbuster, as they tend not to be, but there's a a movie called Touch With Fire, which is a depiction of uh, bipolar disorder, created, uh, directed, written by someone with bipolar, and uh, Katie Holmes and Luke Kirby are in it who don't have bipolar, but they really even though they aren't the people with lived experience with bipolar in the role, I think their star power probably needed it to be there for the film to, you know, have traction. So it, it's really important to note that they don't, it doesn't have to tick 100% of the boxes of lived experience in order for it to be a responsible, respectful, good representation of mental illness. Um, but it was led by that lived experience. And I think that's really important. And people from the bipolar community really see themselves represented in that. There's no um, love fixes everything tropes or it shows sort of the really not so positive side as well as some of the strengths that people with bipolar can have, but it also doesn't um, glamorize it as well. So definitely watch that one if you can. It was on SBS On Demand, but I don't think it's there anymore. Please like me. One of my faves, absolute faves, and I agree with you. It did such a good job of depicting the complexity of it and thought that was so refreshing when I watched that because I thought people could actually see their actual lives in his show and that's a rare treat. So I know it's on Netflix, just as an FYI, anyone that's got yes. Netflix. It's very accessible. It. <laughs> Watch it if you have it. Exactly. Now, you're a parent and so I'm just sort of wondering, what would your vision for the world be in terms of what you want your child to grow up with in regards to mental health? And also, as a secondary aspect to that question, how are you planning on it or have you already started having conversations with them about mental health? It's a great question. I, I feel like no parent wants their kid to grow up with a mental illness, but I'm trying to be realistic in that my son has rampant family history of mental health issues and he also has to grow up in a pandemic world in <laughs> with all of its flaws. So I think what's uh, what I'm hoping for in a world where my son can grow up as healthy as possible is that it's a it's a more open world where you can talk openly and freely about mental illness. I'd really love that the mental health stigma continues this sort of decline and there continue to be more representations of mental illness and disability. Um, and for the same reason that it's it's unlikely that that my son will escape disability or mental illness. It's very unlikely. So we can't I'll wrap our kids, but we can prepare them for that world. And I'd love it to be a better funded world. So when he he needs help, he can access that easily uh, on the same basis as everybody else. And I feel like 
the I guess the the sort of my generation are coming to that acceptance of our shared traumas where the generation before us weren't really allowed to speak too much about mental illness, their even their emotions in general, and expected to sort of fit into those societal roles and carry on and get their head down. So they weren't really given the tools to become emotionally healthy and resilient. So I feel like we're in a good position as parents of this generation to be able to give those tools to our kids that we had to learn for ourselves. <laughs> so I'm really hoping that my son's generation and his kids are really emotionally resilient and well-rounded. They're just going to be excellent, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> and that was Flick Manning, host of 3CR Brainwaves, chatting with Stephanie Fornasier from the Psycho Cinematic podcast talking about her lived experience of anxiety and depression and why we should care about ethical, authentic portrayals of mental illness and disabilities. Now, I'm sure you're all dying to dive into this podcast. So if that's the case, you can head to Steph's website, www.psychocinematicpodcast.com. That's www.psychocinematicpodcast.com and you can tune into the podcast there. And if you enjoyed that interview, uh, you can hear more from Flick Manning at Brainwaves, which airs on 3CR, Wednesday 5pm to 5.30pm. The program challenges the mainstream negative stereotypes of people with a mental illness and actively engages those living with mental illness as researchers, interviewers, performers and program designers while promoting community mental health awareness. And if you need any resources or support coming out of uh, listening this morning, go to beyondblue.org or call Lifeline 131114. Please look after yourself. We're going to head to a couple of tracks now from the Radio Electric recording project that took place in 2009 at the Milparinka in Brunswick and Richmond. Milparinka is an adult training unit that enables people with disabilities to achieve their ambitions. And Rose Ether worked with 12 people who regularly attend the centre to record a series of short sound pieces. So we're going to start off with... Uh, my Nan Taught Me These Songs by Bruce. My Nan Taught Me These Songs. I had a record player. If you were the only girl in the world and I would be the only boy and he got Ali Ali took me on the train in a train and mum used to work she used to help Nana cook cook and we lived in Perth mum and Alba and I and Alba's husband before that she lived in the flat her and her husband and she knew all the family my, she was my mum's sister. She used to go see mum. Oh, that's one. Yeah. Your beautiful brown eyes. Beautiful, beautiful brown eyes. Bring Cosby. Judy Garland. Touching our truck. 
My Nan Taught Me These Songs by the Radio Electric Project and that was Bruce's song. And Grace, I think that's a perfect segue into the next segment where we're going to be talking about songs and teaching children. Yeah, so we have got a very interesting segment coming up. Uh, Basically, I'll be speaking to Dr. Ricky Bunagard-Nielsen, who is an experimental psycholinguist with a particular interest in the accusation and processing of Australian Indigenous languages. So I've read this article on the conversation, which basically talks about baby talks. So quite a good segment, segue to a song, uh, sorry, to a discussion about language and children, especially coming from the song just now. So basically, there was this new study of a war pre language, which shows how baby talk helps little kids learn to uh, on how to learn to speak and so yeah, i'll be talking to dr ricky uh in regardings to this good morning ricky how are you <laughs> good morning how are you i'm good <laughs> <laughs> all right so can i first get to know what is baby talk just for our listeners to understand what that means yes baby talk is uh one of many registers that that we use when we speak to to people in particular contexts or settings so so we will be speaking about a, a register that's used for, for babies and, and it, for, for little kids into kind of childhood. Um, and it's a variety or a register that's characterized by the use of simple sentences, so, so not complex sentence structures, mm. a use of a smaller vocabulary and, and special words like nana for banana. But mm. it's also characterized by things that we don't really maybe... Um, do as consciously or are, are as aware of as we are of the sort of the vocabulary things, for instance. People tend to use a higher pitch um, and they tend to do something else that's really, really interesting. They tend to modify or change the way they produce their vowel sounds when they speak to children. Mm, interesting. And so uh, is there a reason why we have this or is this just something that very naturally comes out? As well, I think it is very natural, but you're mm. right that there's, there's good reasons for doing this. Um, mm. And there's lots of research out there that has shown that, that using this particular register with, with babies and children mm. um, helps children in, in a number of ways. It helps them regulate their emotions because it sounds positive, it sounds um, warm. Mm-hmm. And it also helps communication because, of course, 
making things simpler is is a way to to secure that you have clear communication with a young child. But it also attend, uh, draws attention, the way that we speak to young children, the pitch changes, and makes to make children listen more for, for child-directed speech. And importantly, it also teaches language structure. So it teaches the, the vowel inventory, for instance, um, to, to babies under the, in the first year of life. And, and our study shows it's also doing something that teaches older children about language and it teaches them specifically about words. Mm, I see. Interesting. And then with with the whole study about baby talks, we, basically a lot of them have been based on studies of European languages, as mentioned in, uh, in the article. Yeah. And then obviously a lot of these, uh, as, as I've also mentioned, they are predominantly in Western educated industrialized, which rich democratic cultures. So, and... And what you have this, what you have recently discovered was basically with, uh, with the use of the Walpiri language. So, and that comes into our main topic of the discussion. So, you've used the Walpiri language. So, can we first get to know what this language is, and then after that, we go into what's so new about this discovery, and, <laughs> and that that is different for the whole baby talk. Yeah. Yeah. So, so European languages, especially the ones um, that have been predominantly studied um, in in many domains of language research, including child language or child-directed language, mm-hmm. they're, they're the, the main European languages. We, they've, they've been receiving a lot of attention, and in some regards, um, that's helpful, of course, mm-hmm. but in other regards, it's not very helpful because the world is full of wonderful languages, including the Australian indigenous languages, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of variety in the shape of these languages in the world. So if we just look at, at one small sample, like the European languages, we end up getting a very skewed or narrow view of what what humans do, what language acquisition is, and 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 what kind of constraints there might be on on what humans can do when they learn languages. So it's really important that we look at, at typologically diverse languages. So that's languages that aren't European, mm. languages that are spoken in in a wide range of cultures. Because of course, lots of what we do when we raise children is, is culturally determined, not not specifically linguistically determined. So it's really, really important that we get that diversity in the in the sample that we look at. And Warpri is a, is a central Australian language. It's it's one of the bigger ones in in Australia these days. Um, it has about three thousand speakers. So that's that's a big language, um, relatively speaking. And it means, thank goodness, that it's still being transmitted to children. Children are still acquiring Warpri, and that's fantastic. Mm, that's really interesting, and and I think of I think you also then mentioned that there was a first finding, a first time finding regarding the use of the Walpurgis language for baby talks. Can you explain what that was? Uh, yeah, so so the so what we found Walpurgis is is different from English um, and German and French and all the other European languages. And one important um, area that's that. Is central to much of the child language research, child language direct research, and that is that English and Danish and German, French, all have lots and lots of vowels. Walpri has only three, and that means that that there's maybe room for more exploitation of the of the vowel space in Walpri. It's less constrained, and that's exactly what our study shows. Our study shows that that Walpri caregivers can use the characteristics of Walpri, these three vowels, 
to very specifically teach young children about the the shape of of, of nouns, about the the words for things. So we show that not only do Walbury caregivers use a child directed register, right? This is a first in its own right, mm-hmm. um, but they also um, use it in a way that's different to what has been demonstrated for for English, um, for for German, for for French, where where yes, there's there's definitely vowel hyperarticulation, we call it, mm-hmm. but it, it's not necessarily used in exactly the same way. So Walpri caregivers use their child-directed speech not only to hold child attention, but also to scaffold learning, which is which is so cool. <laughs> mm, I see. That's very interesting. And so, be, so basically, with these three different vowels that being used, it's kind of like also, it goes into the very main basic of what children would generally learn first and when they first get to speak. Exactly. So the the mm. vowels are, the vowel learning is is supported by this. So learning mm. the the sounds of your language, but it it continues into the the second and third year of life, which is which is um, a, a period where you're not so much learning the sounds of your language. You're learning the the words. You're learning the grammar, and and making sure that you get high quality information about the shapes of the words. Right. If you if the words you're learning are articulated very clearly. Then, then they're much easier for you to kind of pick out of the speech stream as a, as a young child. Um, and Walbury caregivers do this so so beautifully. Mm, I see. Very it's interesting. Like a, it's like a highlighter, basically. Ah, okay. And coming into uh, the mentions of the Walbury caregivers, so with your research that you have done, you basically videoed four uh, Walpuri speaking caregivers, and in, and yeah. there was in, this this was in conversation with the familiar adults and four young children, and they were aged between two to three at their homes. And you mentioned that they you you deliberately considered the real life social context of these conversations. Is, is there a reason why for that? Yeah, most of the research that's out there um, on on any language is is research that it's it's wonderful research, but it's research that is very lab centered. And that means that, that caregivers from whatever language background they have come into baby labs or, or labs in universities in unfamiliar circumstances. And, and the caregivers are given typically toys and to play with, with their children. And that mm. session is recorded. And the data from, from the play session, and typically the, 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 the names for the toys that they've been given, is, is analyzed. To compare that data, the child-directed speech, to adult-directed speech, you you usually invite the caregivers to then subsequently have a conversation, maybe about the same toys, with some someone from the lab. So it might be the researcher or a research assistant, and they have a, a short conversation to provide a kind of comparison data set. That's, that's not a very ecologically valid uh, approach to take. Right? We, we've got very different relationships between the caregiver and the child compared to what we have between the caregiver and the, and the other adults. But we also have a very strange environment in which to to um, record the data. So we recorded people in or near their homes, mm. and we recorded them talking to someone else, as who, some other adult, who who they know and, and care for. So that means we've got a situation where we've got um, meaningful social relationships in, sort of um, in, built into our data collection procedure. Mm, I see, but then I think I think our listeners might be curious because obviously, uh, I I I studied linguistics as well, so I I just love le- learning about more about uh, languages in general. And then what I yeah. underst- what I understand is that, um, 
when people are, are aware they're being filmed and being recorded, they also kind of still change the way they make sure they emphasize their con- their words and the way they pronounce. So did this uh did did this in any way affect the the research? So so the the recordings themselves are done by basically the people themselves. Mm-hmm. So we we to the extent that it's possible, and this this may never really truly one hundred percent be possible. Mm-hmm. To the extent that it's possible, we are we are trying to avoid what's called the observer's paradox. That's mm-hmm. much harder to avoid in a lab setting, right? Because you might if you're a if you're a caregiver and you've brought your child in, you might feel silly about using baby talk in the lab setting. Some mm-hmm. people feel like that there's absolutely nothing wrong with using baby talk. It's very helpful to babies. But in, in in some people's minds, it might still be something they worry about being heard doing. And that, of course, we take out of the equation for, for, for this type of study, um, as well as we take out the, the kind of the awkwardness that you might feel talking to a researcher you've never met before and maybe having a conversation with an adult about a, a toy sheep, a toy shark, and a toy shoe, right? It's, mm. it's a bit weird. Mm. And that part is, is, is eliminated from this type of experimental design. Mm, I see. Very interesting. And um, Dr. Ricky, unfortunately, we're going to be running a bit out That's of time right. soon. But I just want to ask you one last question. So, and so now with in regards to this whole entire discovery, why do you think this has become so important for research uh, in regards to child-directed speech? Because we, we, we don't know enough about what the parameters are. We don't know enough about what people can do mm. when they use child language or child-directed speech. We don't know how it helps children. And if we don't know what scaffolds typical acquisition, we also have a hard time assisting, for instance, atypical developing children. So there's a lot of, of sort of um, downstream um, benefits from, from having a, a wide sample, from having good representation of, of all types of, of cultures and languages in child-language child research. Mm, I see. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Ricky, for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. You take care. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Dr. Ricky Budengard nielsen who is an experimental psycholinguist with a particular interest in the accusation and processing of Australian indi- Indigenous languages. We basically were discussing on the discussion, the main topic of baby talks, where they, they did a research on using the Wapiri language, which is a language mainly spoken in central Victoria, with about three thousand speakers, uh, three thousand with about three thousand people using it, and that's uh, considered quite relatively. A lot, according to Dr. Ricky, and and basically we they did a research with this language to help understand how this helps little kids to learn how to speak. So yeah, that's just been a very interesting conversation on languages and linguistics, which is also my particular interest in what I study in. Fascinating conversation, Grace. I really enjoyed uh, hearing about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll uh, have to follow up and. Um, Maybe get some audio recordings. I'm not sure if they'll have permission to pass those on, but it'd be lovely to uh, to to hear the language of Definitely. that uh, the children are speaking and uh, learning to articulate. We've got a couple of uh, messages to share with you. Uh, first one is from a former breakfast presenter who has been 
here with me for about three years until she went back to England. And that was Alice Golds, who left us, I think, in about March last year. And she sent us a lovely, warm message uh, to support 3CR Breakfast during Radiothon. She says, Hello, 3CR. I'd like to give some support to my old co-host who works so hard and brings such joy to the airwaves, Claudia at Wednesday Brecky. Love your work and keep making radical radio. Miss you lots. How nice is that? Mm, that's so sweet. Yeah. So uh, that's the lovely Alice who our listeners will, will remember. Alice always had a lovely light uh, touch and uh, yeah lots of lots of fun we had uh, back when Alice was here so thanks again uh, to our Radiothon supporters we've had some more donations come in uh, just in the last couple of days we are extremely grateful and remember any donation over two dollars is tax deductible so a couple of days left uh, to make a donation before Friday uh, when it's the end of the financial year. We can uh, take a call now on 94198377 or text us on 0488809855 and of course you can always hop on line at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or go to the Breakfast Crowd Raiser at givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. Also, but if you're unable to have access to the internet or you don't have your phone with you, that's also completely fine. You can send your check or money order made to made out to Tricia uh, to the uh, PO Box 1277 Collingwood, Victoria 3066. So, yeah, we've got lots of options to help continue to donate to us. And you can also pop in between 9 mm-hmm. and 5, Monday to Friday, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. We always love to meet our listeners and, uh, yeah, very grateful for the people that have uh, reached into those their pockets. Thank you. Um, so another message uh, from Patrick Morrow, who uh, is taking a holiday break. But as listeners will know, Patrick's been doing a fantastic job keeping us updated on the Barack Beacon public housing battle uh, that has been going on in Port Melbourne. And we were hoping to bring you the outcome of the VCAT decision that was supposed to take place on Monday, but that's been postponed again. And VCAT will be sitting this afternoon uh, at 2.30pm. So, yeah, we'll wait with bated breath to see what comes out of that. Campaigners are are urging the public to attend the last protest of the campaign. So tomorrow, the Retain, Repair, Reinvest rally will take place on the steps of Parliament House at midday. That's Thursday the 29th of June midday to 1pm and this is another step in the struggle to force the Victorian state government to abandon its current privatisation agenda and adopt a retain, repair and reinvest strategy in order to increase public housing stock. There's also an information session on at the Middle Park Library and Community Centre in Middle Park uh, Bayside and that is 
a Protect Public Homes Forum organised by the Greens Party, Thursday 29th from 6pm to 8pm. And you can also check out the Save Barack Beacon Facebook page for updates on uh, those events. And we do wish Margaret Kelly well this afternoon. Um, Yeah, we're with you, Margaret, and fingers crossed for the outcome of this long-standing public battle. Okay, we're going to head to a song now. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Yasmin Smith about the First Nations classic book series. Here is It's So Easy from the Radio Electric Project, and this is Ashley's song. Yeah, what's up, everyone? Hey, girl, everyone, it's all good. You can sing along, you can dance along. You can try to sing along and dance along. You know what to do, it's so easy to do. You know what to do, it's so easy to do. I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, We are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia. Statistically, it has to stop, and it's not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison. It's a Band-Aid. What about beds outside? Tune in to 3CR during NAIDOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison, Marguerite Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison. To hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. 3CR Digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. 
For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. Okay, we're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast this morning. Thanks for joining us. Now, hitting the bookstores this month is an exciting new series of First Nations literature. It's called the First Nations Classic Series, and it's published by QUP, the University of Queensland Press. The series spans a range of genres, including memoir, novels, short stories and poetry, and gathers prominent Australian Indigenous voices to celebrate the achievements and contributions of First Nations writers in shaping the cultural landscape of this country. We are very fortunate to have the series editor, Yasmin Smith, with us to speak about this rich collection of First Nations books. Yasmin is an editor, writer and poet of South Sea Islander, Cubby Cubby and English Heritage, who is currently working as an editor at the University of Queensland Press. Welcome, Yasmin. Hello, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a delight to have you this morning. Congratulations on the publication of this series. How does it feel to have worked on this special project and for it now to be out in the bookstores? Yeah, it's been such an incredible experience um, for me as a series editor. Um, UQP are really proud of the First Nations classics. Um, It's kind of the first of its kind um, in terms of reviving books that have been previously published and calling them classics by First Nations authors. Um, So, yeah, it feels like a really um, significant kind of groundbreaking project to be a part of. And, um, yeah, we're really excited for more readers to get their hands on books um, by prominent First Nations writers and poets and um, and to engage with our stories now. So I guess, yeah, it's been a really big honour to be part of um, relaunching these books and putting them back into the world. Absolutely. Can you tell us when the idea for the classic series was first mooted and what was some of the thinking behind creating the series as a collection of classics? Yeah, so the First Nations classics, um, they were really launched out of this idea of wanting to honour and I guess revive some of UQP's um, backlist of Indigenous writing. So UQP, as a small publishing house, um, we've kind of had this long-standing tradition of really championing First Nations authors for a long time. And, you know, I think we were the first kind of mainstream Australian publisher um, to set up a list that was specifically for um, Indigenous writers. And so, um, yeah, UQP kind of has, you know, has this, has this history and so um, we really wanted to, I guess the idea of releasing these books kind of came out of wanting to dip back into our archive and uh, and look at what we've, you know, what we've got. And so UQP has, you know, a really big collection of, of, of books that have ranged across, you know, many decades and, and styles and were published in different genres by First Nations writers. 
And so um, that's where I guess the classics were really burst out of, um, was just wanting to, you know, um, I guess pull back some of our books out of out of the archives and, and out of the backlist and, um, and bring them to a contemporary readership and... Um, yeah, I mean, we wanted the collection to be quite rounded and, and be across uh, lots of authors and genres. Um, and we wanted to bring kind of attention to the books individually, but then also as this collectible series that readers could get their hands on and, um, and pick and choose what they wanted out of it as well. So as you've said, QUP has an enormous backlist of First Nations titles but there's only eight books in this series. Can you tell us what factors were considered when selecting these books? I mean, it sounds like a a very difficult task to nail down eight to include in this series. I'm sure there were many contenders. So can you tell us a little bit about the defining uh, features of these books and perhaps also a little bit about the processes that were set up in your publishing house to sort of facilitate the decision-making yeah, um, so like I said, we kind of wanted this range of genres and styles and books that were published from different decades. And so it was a really, you know, difficult cho- decision, like narrowing down to eight books um, that were previously published and then relaunching them as kind of new editions. But I guess the factors that we really considered um were looking at works that were of clear cultural importance and significance to First Nations people and to um, First Nations voices and books that were really kind of timeless um, in terms of, yeah, in terms of what First Nations people kind of considered a classic. So, like you said, there's not... There's not there's only eight books on the list, and some of um, our classics are maybe not as old as what some of the other canons of, of you know Eurocentric classics might look like. Um, but we really wanted to pick books, like I said, that were culturally significant works, um, and we wanted the series to kind of be this reflection of what First Nations people consider as groundbreaking and classic, in, in our own opinion. Um, yeah, so. Um, to kind of talk about the series a little bit more individually, we decided that we wanted to choose, you know, books that were, you know, maybe um, significantly award-winning books. Um, so we kind of chose these, you know, works of fiction by, like, Tony Birch, and it was his debut novel called Blood, um, Ellen Van Niven's Heat and Light, um, Janine Lane's Purple Threads, so, you know, both of those were David Uniapon winners when they were first published. Um, but then, yeah, we also wanted to, you know, spotlight books um, like Uncle Herb Wharton's novel Unbranded, uh, which was, you know, it was based on his life as a teenage drover. Um, and, you know, there was a short story collection in there by Archie Weller, which is called The Window Seat. Um, Archie was, you know, the runner-up. Um, of the Vogel Award in, in the 1980s. And so, um, but, you know, those books kind of maybe not as well known um, as some of our other other books um, on the in the series. And, and so, yeah, and the book, also, the, the series also includes, um, you know, well-known kind of biographies, Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence um, and Don't Take Your Love to Town. 
Um, uh, but then, you know, there was also an out-of-print kind of poetry collection called Holocaust Island, which we unearthed as well. So it was kind of a selection of books that were well-known, but also books um, that were kind of literary gems, but may have not gotten the readership that they deserved when they were first published um, many decades ago. Yes, and... Speaking of many decades ago, I was really interested to hear your observations of the books in terms of publishing them now in 2023, in terms of how things might have changed or not changed since they were first written and published. Yeah, I mean, um, there's obviously this strong kind of shift in First, First Nations writing and um, and the way it's been kind of received and um, a lot more... Um, there's a lot more engagement, I think, with First Nations work now than there was, say, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And so I think we, as a small publishing house, really have wanted to, um, you know, give readers a, a taste of the things that they they want to engage with now in terms of, of books and story. And so, um, you know, like I said, many of these, books that I was part of the series um, were not as kind of well-known as as they first, well, when they were first published. Um, and so bringing them back into the spotlight has kind of given them, I don't know, maybe a, a second life or revived them and, in some way and um, has continued to, I don't know, I guess, embody them as, as, as timeless works um, that people can still engage with. And, and that was a real kind of um, a, a real kind of point that we wanted to make as well is that, you know, these books, the First Nations classics, were really designed to celebrate that legacy of, of groundbreaking First Nations writing. Um, you know, they were kind of put together to as a, as a celebration of, um, of, of what's come out of the different generations and... Um, yeah, and we wanted to make the series kind of accessible, I guess, if you um, if you talk about where we're at in terms of First Nations literature right now, we wanted, you know, the books to be affordable and, um, yeah, and we wanted to kind of put them back into the hands of, of readers. Yeah. And uh, the, despite being called a classic series, there is a contemporary feel to the, to the books, um, in the way they've been packaged and you've got this beautiful uh, theme with the artwork on the cover of each book and also an introduction to each of the novels or novels mm. and uh, non-fiction contributions by contemporary First Nations authors. Can you tell us a little bit about the way you made those decisions to publish these books in this way? Yeah, um, so we obviously wanted to relaunch the books as new editions and, and we thought it was really important to kind of honour the First Nations classics, I guess, for the work that they had already done by introducing them by contemporary First Nations um, voices. And so, again, the, we, we chose to um, cross-patch, I guess, different genres and genders and generations to introduce them. And so... Um, you know, the classics have kind of been introduced by some contemporary um, authors and poets and and, um, and and significant people within our communities, um, you know, some of them including Evelyn Ara Lewin and 
Nadi Simpson and Tara June Winch, Larissa Barrent. Um, you've got poet Ellie Kobe Eckerman in the end there. And we also wanted singer-songwriter um, Kev Carmody and well-known actor Ernie Dingo. So we kind of chose these voices to reflect on the weight that these books have kind of carried since they were first published. And, and they were all kind of paired with consideration as well. You know, we did a lot of consultation with the authors, um, in terms of, you know, who would be best matched. Um, and so, yeah, the First Nations classics were kind of introduced by someone whose um, who's work or their writing or their lives or their art in some way they have been influenced or intertwined by the book itself. So, oh, yeah. So exciting. Um, yeah, and to talk a little bit about the, um, those beautiful artworks on the covers, they were all designed by um, a First Nations artist um, Jenna Lee. So Jenna, you know, kind of has done these incredible book cover designs for us and, um, yeah, she kind of wanted to showcase the vibrancy and diversity of First Nations voices. And so on the cover you'll see that they're, they look like a collectible set, um, but they've got these beautiful little windows um, and within the window on the cover it has like a little um, a symbol or a motif that um, kind of gives the readers a little bit of a hint to what what the story is about on the inside. So, um, yeah, so we're really proud of how they look on the shelves as well. They're really beautiful. Mm. Well, unfortunately we're out of time, but uh, just wanted to wrap up with a note about the event at the Wheeler Centre next Thursday uh, the 6th of July. Can you give us a 10-second rundown of what's what's happening next Thursday? Yeah, so there's um, the event on next week, um, Writing Black Legacies. Um, it's held by at the, at the Capitol. It's on the 6th of July, and um, you can buy tickets via um, the Wheeler Centre website. Um, so it's just going to be a great celebration of black literature and of um, coming together also in a celebration um, of NADOC and and also to just, um, yeah, to really celebrate and honour um, some of our authors will be there performing on the night, um, Tony Birch, Evelyn Arrowin, Ellen Ben-Nevin. Um, so, yeah, you can get tickets and you can also come along and, and support and buy, um, buy the series as well. So we'd love to see heaps of people come out for that. Thank you so much, Yasmin, for joining us and uh, encourage listeners to engage with uh, the event next week. Get along to the Capitol Theatre Thursday night and please check out these books. You can buy them as a collection or individually. They're in your local bookstore or you can buy them online. And just also, as we round up the show, uh, to remind listeners, if you're not already blazingly aware that next week, this Sunday, uh, NADOT week begins. So runs for a week from the 2nd to the 9th of July. And the theme this year is for our elders. So there are many events on and you can check out what is on at www.nadoc.org.au forward slash local events and of course uh, tune in to 3CR's Beyond the Bars our annual special broadcast giving voice to Aboriginal inmates from inside Victorian prisons will be broadcasting every day from the 3rd to the 7th at 11am and I think that's all we've got time for this week so thank you to our guests 
Thank you to our listeners and we will look forward to seeing you again next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.